What are kids really thinking and feeling? Sometimes it's hard to know. The thousands of letters and emails kids send to Highlights Magazine every year help us keep our finger on the pulse of kids. We think they can also help you. So each week on this podcast, we talk with friends and experts about the things kids share with us and about making a world that honors children's voices. Lean in and listen to learn what kids want their grown-ups to know about being a kid today. I'm Christine French-Cully, and you are listening to Dear Highlights. Dear Highlights, I have a problem with my temper up your at night, and I miss you all the I get keys I want your head. Dear Highlights. Dear Highlights. Dear Highlights. Hi, everybody. In season two of this podcast, we have tried something a little different. Every other episode is a conversation with a friend of Highlights, a friend who has an interesting perspective and how we adults can make the world our kids deserve. And what I love about these episodes is that I'm joined by our podcast producer, Hillary Bates, who has become a friend and who is a thoughtful mom of two. And uh, so welcome, Hillary. I'm so glad to be here. And I was so excited to talk to Dr. Levine. You know that I really, really enjoyed her book. I read a lot of parenting books in order to get us prepped for some of this podcast. But this was one that I stayed up late turning the pages of. Um, And I hope that some of our listeners, after they hear this, are interested enough to go out and get it. There's a lot that's in the book that we don't get to cover in the conversation. Yeah, you were so enthusiastic about it. You sent me off rushing to the bookstore to pick up a copy, and it really was pretty incredible. Uh, Yeah, I think there's a lot to reassure parents in it about, um, you know, that they can do less and still be doing a good job. And that seems to me like something we could all hear right now. I do want to warn our listeners that when they're listening today, they might hear a little bit of background noise in the podcast. There's a noise of a pen clicking sometimes. And unfortunately, we couldn't edit it out because we would have had to edit out some of the really great content of the podcast. So hopefully you can just hang in there with us, audience, uh, with a little bit of background noise. Yeah, it's, it's going to be so worth it. I think listeners will leave better able to see trying times, times of big change and uncertainty as not only challenges, but also opportunities. So let's hear what Dr. Levine has to tell us. Let's get to it. Our guest today is Madeline Levine, PhD, a psychologist with over 35 years of experience as a clinician, consultant, educator, and author. Dr. Levine's book, Ready or Not, focuses on how to best prepare our children and ourselves for an uncertain and rapidly changing world. Welcome, Madeline. Thank you so much, Chris. Well, you have written a very thought-provoking book, which both Hillary and I have been enjoying. Uh, it's about how to help kids thrive in uncertain times. And we have the revised edition with new material that will help parents through the pandemic era. So this conversation will certainly feel relevant as we um, dig into it even more. But before we get into your advice, what really struck us was the tremendous empathy you express for parents and the job they have been handed in this difficult moment. So we have a a lot of uh, safety and resources available to us today, many more than our parents had before us. So why is it so challenging to raise kids right now? Oh, pick one out of a hundred things. It's that book, (laughs) Ready or Not, was written 
um, before the pandemic. And it came out two weeks before lockdown in this in California, where I am. Um, so I wasn't prescient. I didn't have any idea that we were about to come into a pandemic. But all the things that that I write about in terms of change have been happening for quite some time. Um, and I've written before. I wrote a book called The Price of Privilege and a book called Teach Your Children Well. I've always been writing about childhood and the need to get some of the pressure off kids and parents. And, you know, when you said that about empathy for parents, I think it's worth noting that there are hundreds of books about child and child development. And there's an army of people like myself out there talking about children. There's highlights. There's there's very little in terms of the challenge of parenting. And, and so it's as if children exist by themselves, which they don't, of course. And the most predictive thing we know of in terms of mental health is the the quality of parenting. So you would think there should be more books on parenting than there are on child development, but there are very, very few. And I raised three sons um, who are are grown now. um, And I found that there was just a tremendous lack of resource for parents. And there was a sense that um, parents were narcissistic, that they were doing all kinds of wrong things to benefit themselves, um, that that they just weren't doing a great job and needed a lot of correction. And um, having been a mother with three active sons and a career and a surgeon husband who was gone a lot of the time, it, it just seemed to me we were doing the best we could. And I, I always want that sentiment to come across in my writing and especially in the middle of a pandemic when you're being told do this and do that and you know the beginning of the pandemic was all here's the list of things you should be doing you know structure the day and make sure your child eats well and make sure they exercise and make sure they do their homework and clean the house and change your closets and get the dust balls and it was like really you know we're trying to get by now. We're trying to survive, and I just, I just thought that putting more demands on parents in the most difficult time most parents are ever going to have in their lives uh, missed the missed the point that most parents really are doing the best they can. Yeah, in our correspondence with parents during the pandemic and um, continuing, of course we have noticed a real hunger on the part of parents to hear those words, good job, you've got this, you can do it. Oh yeah, at the very beginning of the pandemic, very beginning, I I was doing a lot of talks, Zoom talks, and um, I said that the goal of the pandemic was to get through it with your family reasonably intact. And I said that over and over. And I got so many people writing to me and it's like, Dr. Levine, that's such a low bar. Like, shouldn't we be using this and learning from it? And, and, and I still feel the same way. It's getting through this historically difficult period of time with your family reasonably intact. I don't think that's a low bar at all. I actually think it's quite a high bar. 
So, um, and I think parents for the most part are done with uh, those lists that go on the refrigerator telling them to bake and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah. So I, I do, I mean, I think the point of what I'm saying is that it's been incredibly challenging for parents, um, particularly for working moms. Um, and if they're getting through, that's, that's great. Yeah. Such a, such an important acknowledgement. Well, let's talk a little bit about fatalism. Uh, one thing that you talk about is how kids that, uh, you saw in your practice years ago, were angry at their parents' rules and wanted to resist them. Today, you see more kids who are resigned. You say they feel enraged but powerless. Can you share more about what you are seeing? And can you um, tell us a little bit about what we can do to make kids feel like they can affect their own lives and the world at large? I think that's an incredibly important change. So. The first book I wrote, Price of Privilege, was 15 years ago. And so I was writing it 18 years ago. And kids then were mad at all the demands on them. They'd come into my office and they'd throw down the backpack and say, you know, get my parents off my back. They're just constantly bugging me. And I thought that was a relatively healthy response to the pressure that kids were having, um, and to the developmental task of adolescence, which is to figure out who you are, not who your parents want you to be, figure out who you are. So I thought that was pretty good. And I co-founded an organization down at Stanford called Challenge Success. It's a kind of school reform um, project around that time because kids were being stressed. What I see now, or before the pandemic started, was every school I go to, kids are saying, hey, Dr. Levine, you know, that's the way it is, or you're so naive, or, um, yeah, I got to do this and get it over with what my co-founder down there, Denise Pope, called robo-students, that Mm -hmm. they were kind of resigned um, to the fact that this is how their life was going to be, and you know, what, I think one of the things I don't get at all um, is for parents, we've all grown up, right? So we know the number of tasks it takes to be a functioning grown up, right? You have to be at ease with yourself. You have to know your strengths and weaknesses. You have to know how to talk to friends. You have to know how to talk to the opposite sex. You have to know but your body, I mean, there's a million jobs in growing up um, and this excessive preoccupation with academics. And, and I don't want to be heard as being anti-academics. I'm not. I think that the conditions under which kids do best, and this is our research at Stanford, the conditions under which they do best are not the conditions we have now with three hours of homework or four hours of homework if you're in high school. So the fact that kids have have adjusted to this, I see as a, a, a very worrisome sign. It's worrisome in terms of the fact we have a ton of information on if you don't get enough sleep, what that does to your health, what that does to your cognition. 
Um, if you're stressed all the time, what that does to your health, what that does to your cognition, all the things that we want in working order for kids are damaged by this tremendous emphasis on performance. So I'm struck by the fact that kids are saying, well, you know, Dr. Levine, you're so naive. Um, I'm not naive. I know a lot about what makes for healthy adolescence and young adulthood. And so one of the things we're, we do at Challenge Success is there's no, we're in hundreds of schools around the country. There's no team in the school, it's teams that come to us, that isn't weighted towards the students. So we have the principal, we have the head counselor, we have teachers, we have parents, but we have more students. And I think giving students voice and choice and 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 making the attendant changes. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, kids should have voice and choice. So they say, um, I can't do four hours of homework. And we go, yeah, okay, I hear your voice, but that's the way it is, right? Those, they need to have some sense of efficacy. They need to feel that their voice makes a difference. And that's one of the things we're working on. But parents who come to me and are so proud of the fact that my kid tells me everything, and if I say you're getting an A, they get an A, aren't they great kids? And I'm concerned about those kids. I'm concerned about kids who have lost a sense of efficacy. And that's why, this is a long answer, that's why we're having um, all these emerging adulthood programs, which didn't exist 20 years ago. And, and now there are all these programs that are called emerging adult residential treatment programs for kids who don't have a sense of efficacy and as a result feel usually depressed and often substance abusing um, and don't know how to like make a bed or cook soup or, you know, they just never had to do because the, they didn't have time, the kinds of other developmental tasks that come along with growing up. I'm nodding so much as you're talking. I have a, <laughs> I have a 10 year old and a 13 year old. So I'm right in the middle of it. Right. And, um, you know, when I was reading your book, I was enthusiastically underlining sentences. I had to put my pen down cause it was just going to be a book with everything highlighted. Um, but I, I want to ask about one of the main struggles that I personally have had in stepping back and allowing my kids to do more themselves. And that is the standard that is created by the communities in which we live. Um, I want to, so when my son was in third grade, I got called into the school to talk about his low executive function skills. Mm -hmm. And as we were talking about what that looked like, like his binder wasn't organized, he missed assignments, he wasn't turning things in. One of the things that I brought to that conversation that I knew from conversations with other moms in the neighborhood is that in the group of parents we knew, I was the only person who wasn't organizing that binder for my kid. Which meant that really what the school was starting to see was the executive function skills of the parents in our neighborhood. And that is then what they were measuring the group against, right? Um, so I guess what I'm acknowledging here is that I think sometimes these things get framed as parenting choices, but we live in community with each other. And I really wanted to know what advice you have for parents who want to let their kids do more, but they're not making that decision in a vacuum. 
Right. So a couple of things occur to me as you talk. One is, um, at what at what point should one expect your child to do the binder on his own? And obviously not at five. So there's a period of time of guidance for kids where you would have to be showing him how to do a binder. I mean, he wouldn't learn how to do that, you know, out of thin air. So there's a period of time, but then you get towards what in education we call the ZPD, the zone of proximal development. So when is it okay to expect, well, I'm leaving the community out for the minute. I'm just responding to you and you and your uh, son. Did you say? Mm-hmm. Yes. So you would have had to show him some of that um, because he had no way of learning it without your help. When do you let go? And and the experience for the parent, as you're telling your story, indulge me for a minute, I can remember the exact same sort of situation when in California you have to make missions. That's like in third or fourth grade. Everybody makes a mission. And, and I wasn't big on doing things for my kids. So my, my poor son comes in with this pathetic cotton ball and toothpicks falling apart. And and the architect father did the architect one and the interior designer. You know, they all looked like prototypes that belonged in in an exhibit somewhere. So I think, you know, I think you have to tolerate, we have to tolerate, the parents, um, the kind of, am I living up to what's going on here? Like, maybe there's something wrong with me. Like, my... you know, my kids think was pathetic compared to the other ones. But I, that's a short range point of view, right? Today, it feels, uncom- Mom, how come you didn't do this? Because everybody did. So in the short term, it feels uncomfortable. But in the long term, it's much better. And why is it much, you know, it's not just because I'm saying kids should do stuff. It's much better because a sense of control, efficacy, um, competence. You know, people have this nutty idea about how kids develop competence. They think if they say enough times, you're so good at that, that a child will feel competent. Well, no, that's not how it works at all. As a child masters something, that's what makes them feel competent. Not because you did it for them, but because they went through the process of failing in the beginning and being not very good at it and then getting a little better and a little better. And then if they if they really are interested practicing and then they become very capable. Um, and we know this, we're better at this with young children. Uh, so I just became a grandma. It's really exciting. Well, not just two years ago. It's so exciting. And I, I was watching as my granddaughter, because you have more bandwidth with a grandchild and a child. I was watching her learning to walk, you know, and she takes a couple steps and falls down and takes a couple steps and falls down. And her parents are like, whoa, good job, good job. You know, they're not saying if you fall down again, you're never going to make it into Harvard, right? That, that There's none of that. There's just, yay, you're doing a good job. And that model for learning how kids learn, I think, is really the right model, um, especially in a time when resilience is so badly needed. So how do you get good at stuff? It's not because somebody else does it for you. And, and the pressure from the community 
makes it very hard, I think, on mothers. My response to that would be something like this. Whenever, I mean, I've spoken at about 400 schools around the country, so over a long period of time. And, and you know, there's book signing at the end, and there's always a line of people to have their books signed. And people would always say, you know, I really appreciate what you said, but I'm the only one that feels this way. And how can I, you know, swim upstream against the community? Sign her book. The next person would come up and say, I really agree with what you're saying, but, you know, I'm the only person here. And I'm like, go talk to her. Go talk to the gal right in front of you. So I think I think that that there are far more people than are evident who feel the way you just described or, you know, that I feel. And for whatever reason, it's been hard for them to get together. But there are communities, for example, where parents have gotten together around homework, for example. Like, does your kid, does your son, well, you have two children, do they get homework? They do. Yeah, they both do. But they're, you know, now they're, I guess, in ages where that's more expected in fifth and eighth. You know, there's a, a huge body of research on homework. And um, it's a guy named Cooper is the main researcher on homework. And it's really clear that homework in elementary school is not useful cognitively. Um, And so he ends up, his conclusion ends up being, well, you know, it's really not teaching in the way you think it is, but maybe it's helping your kid learn to sit and hold a pencil. So he says a half hour per grade. And no, I'm sorry, 10 minutes per grade, not a half hour, Um, 10 minutes per grade. Okay. Um, And in junior high school, if it's more than an hour and a half, learning drops. So an an hour and a half for your 14, 13-year-old, that's fine. And in high school, it drops off after two and a half hours. And yet, kids are getting four hours of school. And because that's like really concrete and there's a lot of research on it, there have been many schools that where the um, parents, usually the mothers get together with a document on the research and um, have, have had school changes. The same thing about sleep here in California, our uh, Governor Newsom has started school later because the research is overwhelming on what happens when kids don't get enough sleep. So it's not enough, you know, I'm on the like that end of things, the research translation part of things, but these big policy issues as well that need to change. So interesting. I hear you, you know, talking about short-term versus long-term thinking. I think that's really helpful, interesting way to look at individual parenting choices Um, that can take some pressure off of them. You know, in the book you wrote, think of your child growing up as a movie, not a snapshot. Can you say a little bit more what you mean by that? Sure. So the privilege of being a psychologist, I guess, is that you hear people's concerns. And at this stage in my life, you know, I, I, I kind of have a sense of what's going to matter and what's not going to matter. And, um, like on a personal note, my oldest son for the first four years went to a Jewish day school. And then uh, it was very, very small and he was very social. So I was thinking maybe I should move him 
to the public school where we were, which was great public school. And the the amount of feedback on it, he'll never, you know, he'll never do well and go have him tested. And, you know, it became a huge deal um, and expensive because of the testing and my own uncertainty and stuff. Anyway, we ended up sending him to the public school. He did just fine. And it was a huge waste of time and energy to be that worried about one great school versus another great school. And so the kinds of things I can get calls on, like I got a call recently because the mother said her kid used a bad word, you know, the F word, and did the child need to be seen? And it's like, no, you don't want to pay me to talk to your child, tell her if you don't want that used. But but parents are so hypersensitive to not just their child, but are they doing something wrong? What boat have they missed in raising their children? And I, I think that distinction between long-term and short-term has, has gotten lost. We're in the moment all the time because the competition is so great. But at the end of the day, my kids are all millennials. The things that, and and I can't tell you how true this is, the things that matter have nothing to do with whether they got an A or a B, whether they used a bad word or they didn't use a bad word. Or what. They don't have anything to do with that. They have everything to do with their sense of self of competence and their ability to make relationships. All the stuff we call SEL, socio-emotional learning, which should be in every school. I have a story about why. I'm going to tell it, okay? Tell it. So, so when I wrote Ready or Not, I, I had different um, experts because I had written so much using psychologists and educators and Like I said, there's an army of us out there, uh, you know, talking, talking about back off and let your kids have a childhood and play, you know, Peter Gray. I mean, there's just a million of us out there. And and the needle really hadn't moved um, in terms of negative outcomes like depression and anxiety disorders, which were skyrocketing before the pandemic began. and over and over, I was told that the, the kinds of jobs that parents want for their kids, technology or um, IT or finance, the people that I spoke to in that book were military heads. And I mean heads like the vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the CEO of Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan. I mean, I... Uh, uh, the, the head of uh, research at Google, I wanted to talk to people who are in the middle of change, not necessarily my people, you know. And they all had the same thing to say, which was, we are hiring differently now. We are not, we used to just look at the Ivy Leagues, or we used to just look at heart. We don't do that anymore because we were missing so much talent and also so much willingness to work. Um, and I was interested in that idea because most parents still worry, my kid got to be, it means they'll never get into X school. Um, and X school might matter nowhere near as much as parents seem to think. So 
I was going, this is my story. I'm going for a uh, mortgage. And my youngest son, who then is about 18, wants to come with me, 19 maybe. I said, sure. So we go in to the head of the mortgage department of this very big bank. And um, Jeremy, that's my son's name, is just kind of being who Jeremy is, which is very attentive to people and thoughtful. And so I'm talking, I'm in there maybe an hour with this woman. And over the course of that hour, like maybe three times, he looks at his watch and he says, hey, Ma, you know, I think the meter is going to run out. Can I put a quarter in for you? Good idea, Jay. Um, My voice was like it is now, which it is a lot of the time. He says, you know, your voice is raspy. I saw some tea out there. Do you want some tea? And I saw some honey. Can I get that for you? And I say, yeah, that would help. And then he turns to this woman who's running the department and says, would you like some? And then we just go back to mortgage rates. And at the end of the conversation, maybe an hour, hour and 20, I get my mortgage. She turns to my son and says, I want to hire you. Now she knows nothing about him. She doesn't know if he's in college She doesn't know if he has any interest in finance, nothing. So, you know, I'm taken aback. And I said, you know, I'm a psychologist. Tell me about that. And she said, I can teach him the skills. I can teach him about interest and evaluation. I can't teach him to be the guy who says, can I get you a cup of tea? And that's the kid I want working next to me. And he ended up being her right-hand person for a while and then he decided to go to law school because he hated banking but in in any event it was a real life experience of what I've been told and told and told which was um, you know for some very technical jobs obviously you need to be very proficient but for most jobs now people are looking at your ability to collaborate to be creative to self-regulate, which is incredibly important, to, to persevere, right? You, you um, do your son's backpack, Hillary. He doesn't learn perseverance, right? Um, unless the task is way beyond him and then he learns kind of hopelessness. But if it's just kind of beyond him and he keeps doing it and doing it, he'll, he'll have it. And those are the things that are really valued in the workplace, which is what parents are worried about. So it was a real life. Yes, this is really what's going on. It's an important message for parents. Thank you for that. Uh, To close, we like to ask all our guests this question. At Highlights, we believe that children are the world's most important people. And if we really honored that uh, as a society, as a country, what would be different? What would be different? Well, we we would we would all know something about what facilitates child development, which means instead of having your child come home and say, "What was your grade on the math test today?" It would be, um, "Great, you're home. Go out and play." Um, we just don't get it about play. Most schools don't have recess anymore. That's first, if I could change one thing, that's where I'd start. Every school has recess, not just once, once in the morning, lunch, and once in the afternoon. Um, So we would do that. We would not let kids go hungry. Um, We would 
the there's the huge bifurcation of wealth in this country, which has just been made worse by the pandemic. So right now we have a huge group of kids who really have had tremendous loss. And we would have at the ready um, a core of teachers and mental health workers to make sure that those kids get every resource that they need. So the difference in resources, which I got to see during the pandemic, the kids in my neighborhood who had classrooms set up in their backyards versus kids who were being tutored um, and then kids who had nothing, you know, we, we can't have that in a co- We can't not have medical care. We can't not have housing. We can't not have food. So, you know, there's a part of me, I'm an I'm a old social worker and still am at heart. Um, the needs of children are not well met in this country. We're an industrialized, wealthy country, and we have such a proportion of kids who can't get help or health, or that's disgraceful. And in general, um, less, less emphasis on performance, more emphasis on process, um, and less anxiety about performance. You know, my kids pointed out to me at one point, I was, they'd come in every day and I'd say, are you okay? That's me, a little bit of a pessimist in there. Are you okay? Are you okay? As opposed to Tell me, tell me something great that happened today, right? Tell, tell me about that new kid in school. Are you doing anything to help them get comfortable? You know, so purpose. And I think, I think we greatly underestimate um, that kids actually can serve purpose. And um, a lot of the kids that I saw in my backyard who were anxious and depressed, I'd give them a list of service they could do, these are high school kids, and send them on their way. And because they didn't feel there was anything they could do, and they could. They could tutor, they could bring groceries to the elderly. And I, th- I you know, those are the things to expect of kids in my book. They're values-based, not, not straight A's. Right. Help them see they have agency. Well, right. we have a lot of work to do. Thank you for these <laughs> ideas. And thank you for everything you do for kids and families. And thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. We are honored to be able to elevate kids' voices and imagine a world where grown-ups take seriously kids' concerns and act on them. Whether a child's concern is big or small, unique or universal, serious or sure to work itself out, it's real to the child and matters deeply. We've come to see that in every letter kids have sent to us over the years, there are implicit, overarching questions embedded within. Do you care? Am I loved? Do I have a place in the world, a place in the lives of the people I love? We hope kids believe us when we say in many more words, yes, yes, yes. Let's all lean in to give kids what they really need and want, more listening, more understanding, and more connecting. This podcast is an extension of the book, Dear Highlights, What Adults Can Learn from 75 Years of Letters and Conversations with Kids, available now wherever books are sold. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review to help us reach more grown-ups who care about kids. 
Special thanks to the producer of this podcast, Hilary Bates, and also to our audio engineer, Ted Weckbacher. <laughs>